there was an old preacher, he was dying, and uh, he sent a message for his banker and his lawyer to come and be with him at his bedside. Uh, they were members of his church. He said, come to my home and, and be with me as I die. And when they arrived, they ushered up to his bedroom and they enter the room and the preacher holds out his hands, he motions for them to come and, uh, and sit and he grasps their hands and he smiles and he stares at the ceiling. He doesn't really say anything. And um, for a time, nobody said anything. But the banker and the, the lawyer, they were flattered that the preacher would ask them to be with him during his final moments. But they were also puzzled because they'd sat through some sermons in church where they felt distinctly uncomfortable. <laughs> they both remembered his sermons about uh, greed and uh, covetousness. And it made them squirm a little bit as they sat there. And finally, the banker said, preacher, why did you ask us to come? And the old preacher mustered up his strength and he said weakly, Jesus died between two thieves and I wanted to go the same way. <laughs> the lawyers and the bankers are now upset. Well, our, our story today is the story of Jesus dying between two thieves. Um, and it's not a joke, uh, but it's the story of a dying who uh, had an encounter with Jesus and it changed everything for him. Um, so why don't we pray that God would reveal the truth about what happened that day as we open his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your word today, as we open the Bible, help us to have a, a fresh encounter with Jesus. Help us to see him in new ways, to meet him in new ways, and to trust Jesus in a way that changes everything. Father, help us to encounter Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, we are almost at the end of our series called Encounters with Jesus. Um, there's one more week to go after today, uh, but it's a series that's been all about when people had encounters with Jesus, when they met Jesus, and how it changed their life. Um, and we're going to see today a, a man have an encounter with Jesus that changes everything for him and his future. Um, now, our story takes place on the very first Easter, um, the very first Good Friday. Um, I was actually planning to preach this on Good Friday, but I thought it fitted better in the sermon series right now. And so this encounter, really, it takes place against a very confronting backdrop. Jesus is on the cross, along with two criminals. Um, a week before this passage, Jesus had entered Jerusalem on a donkey in this triumph, and people had called out, Hosanna, Hosanna, and, and welcome to the king. They praised him. And now a week later, this king is about to be executed. He's been sentenced to death. Jesus had been arrested the night before. He'd been beaten. He'd been dragged before this religious council. Uh, and then he'd been accused of blasphemy. And the religious council had taken him to Pilate, the Roman governor. And the Roman governor had tried him as well. Actually, Pilate found nothing that he could accuse Jesus of. But the people yelled for Jesus' blood, crucify, crucify. And uh, Pilate gives up Jesus. He gives him away to their demands. He hands Jesus over to be killed. And that's where our passage begins in verse 32. Um, verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the two other criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. I'm always, um, I'm always struck by Luke's account of the cross. Um, for all of the drama that happened in the lead-up um, to this moment, you know, there's this late-night arrest in the garden, courtroom travesty with Pilate, and the crowds shouting, crucify, crucify. They, they let a, a guilty guy go free, 
in order to have Jesus killed. And you get to Luke's gospel and this moment seems to leave all of that drama behind. Um, when you listen to the language that Luke chooses to describe what happened at the place of the skull, and um, by the way, that's where we get the word Calvary from. Calvary is the Latin word for the skull. Um, listen to the language that, that Luke uses. It's almost impersonal. Verse 33, when they came to the place of the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Um, Luke skips over the horrifying details of the crucifixion, the, the reality of men nailed to large wooden beams and hung up to die in front of people. Luke kind of just skips that detail, perhaps because the, the detail's too hard to think about. Um, it's too much to process, and, and so I think we kind of block it out too. We whitewash it and, and we quickly make the cross a symbol of, of hope and victory rather than this symbol of torture that it was. It was a symbol of... Maybe that's it. Or, or maybe Luke skips over the detail because he's making a point about the soldiers who crucified Jesus. Remember, we're talking about encounters with Jesus and this is the first encounter. You see, the soldiers, they're more interested in gambling for Jesus' clothes than they are interested in him. Jesus didn't matter to them. They were just following orders. It was just another day for them on the job. Jesus was no more special than the two criminals hung either side of him. The soldiers, they have an encounter with Jesus, and it means nothing to them. It means nothing to them. Um, the verses have this impersonal ring to them, and I think it's to reflect the absolute disinterest of the soldiers. Um, I think lots of people share that same disinterested attitude towards Jesus you know they know about Jesus perhaps they even know that that Jesus was killed on a cross they might even know that the cross was about Jesus dying for them but they don't pay it more than a moment's attention there's this detachment um, there's a, dis a detachment a, an impersonal response to Jesus and this impersonal response to the cross their encounter with Jesus is characterized by disinterest and so that's the first set of encounter the first encounter it's about disinterest Second set of encounters um, with Luke, uh, sorry, with Jesus in this passage, it's much more personal. Um, Luke captures disdain. He captures the disdain of some of those watching the crucifixion. Have a look at verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. And they said, well, he saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, the chosen one. Um, I'm never sure what to make of the people watching the crucifixion. Um, Luke just tells us that, that they were there. Um, it seems like an execution was some kind of grotesque entertainment. Isn't it, doesn't it feel perverse, kind of voyeuristic? Um, and I want to think that we're different as a society, but I'm not quite sure. I'm going to leave you with that thought. I didn't want to process it too much. Then there are the rulers. Um, the rulers, these were the religious rulers who'd conspired to have Jesus killed, and, and they're there at the execution to sneer at Jesus. They're there to mock him. Um, they take pleasure in his demise. Um, and they perform for the crowd with their fantastic comments. Um, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he's Messiah. If he's the chosen one. Um, I find it really disturbing that religious people would talk this way. Don't you? Um, these leaders, um, they had their reasons for punishing Jesus. Um, they thought that Jesus had done the wrong thing. Uh, they thought he'd blasphemed. Um, that was the heart of their complaint. Um, that everything about Jesus' ministry, it paints him as the Messiah. It does paint him as God's chosen one, this long-awaited saviour of God's people. But this Messiah challenged their religious traditions. 
um, and their interpretation of the, of the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus challenged their authority. He threatened their authority. He questioned the genuineness of their faith. They were right to be angry, or so they thought. Jesus told them that they weren't good enough, that the way they were doing their religion, it was actually worthless. Even though they were upright religious people, or so they thought, and they lash out against Jesus. I want to hit pause on the sermon for a moment and just come back to that thought that, that I began a moment ago. I find it really disturbing that God's people would delight in the mocking of their enemies, um, that they'd delight in Jesus' demise and take such smug pleasure in it. Um, especially when you think about Jesus' words, Jesus taught us that we ought to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us in Matthew 5.44. Jesus, he'd practiced exactly what he preached just moments before as they crucified him. Do you remember what he said? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. There is something very disarming about sowing peace where others expect to fight. There's sowing love where others are preaching hate, um, seeking to understand when everybody else wants to create division. Uh, we learn an important lesson from this encounter between Jesus and the religious teachers. As Jesus followers as people who follow Jesus let us never take pleasure in the demise of our enemies or in the humiliation of our enemies let's let's keep praying for them um, let's keep loving them because there might be opportunities to open up genuine dialogue and and the chance for somebody's life to be changed that's going to happen later in the story but it doesn't happen right yet because when we come back to the story the next verse these religious rulers their their uh, encounter with Jesus it's characterized by disdain in fact, if you look at verse 35, um, they don't even speak to Jesus. They just speak about him. They speak in front of the crowd, belittling him. He saved others. Let him save himself if he's God's Messiah, if he's the chosen one. Um, last week, do you remember what the devil said to Jesus? He said, if you are the son of God, come down. He didn't say come down. He said, jump off and you'll be saved. Well, the soldiers, they join in the taunting, verse 36. Soldiers, uh, verse 36, they came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and they said, if you're the king of the Jews, then save yourself. Um, every, even one of the criminals crucified beside Jesus takes up the cry in verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. Disdain. Um, that's the attitude towards Jesus in these encounters. Um, it's disdain for Jesus because the cross is this symbol of weakness and, and, and a symbol of shame and a, and a symbol of failure. Um, disdain because the Messiah they pictured, this Messiah they pictured would be an all-conquering king and, and a redeemer of the people and this mighty warrior, not this beaten and bloodied figure hanging on a cross. And there was disdain because for all of Jesus' talk of saving others, it didn't look like he was able to save himself, did it? It didn't look like that's what he was doing, let alone saving anybody else as he hung there dying on the cross. And I sometimes wonder, you know, why people have so much disdain for Christians. And, and perhaps it's because they see Jesus the way that the rulers and, and the soldiers and the criminals saw Jesus. They, they just see weakness. They just see failure. They just see humiliation. They, they don't see strength. They see weakness. They don't see a savior because we've been taught that salvation means winning all the time. You know, salvation, that's what we've been taught. Salvation means winning, never, never failing. I'm so frustrating because actually everybody who was there that day, they got the idea that Jesus was meant to save. Um, it happens three times. All of those three people who mock him, they say, it's, 
Why don't you save yourself? Save yourself. Save us. But they didn't understand how Jesus would save. They understood that saving was his core mission, but they didn't understand how. And so they write Jesus off as a joke. Um, Just like they write Christians off as a joke. You know, sad and pathetic and pitiable and fools. And there are many people who have an encounter with Jesus, but they can't see past the foolishness of the cross. That's the second encounter with Jesus. Disdain. Um, Third one, uh, the third encounter in our passage, and this is the story of the second criminal um, who saw what the other criminal couldn't. Uh, Remember that first criminal, he'd hurled insults at Jesus, verse 39, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him, verse 40, don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we're getting what our our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Second criminal, he brings us back to the reality of the cross. Jesus and two other men have been nailed to crosses and they are on their way to death. Seems almost impossible that this first criminal is still spitting out venom against Jesus in his dying moments. Maybe he expected Jesus to save them all. You know in those Western movies when they're, they're about to get hung on the noose and somebody shoots the, the rope and then they, they, get a, they escape. But there's no escape from the cross. And the second criminal knew that he and his friends, they weren't the good guys. They were the baddies. They were baddies. Their crimes had caught up with them and they were getting what they deserved. They were being punished justly. And Jesus, they know that Jesus isn't one of the baddies. Um, He says in verse 40, this man has done nothing wrong, he says to his friend. And this idea stands at the the heart of the cross and why Jesus had to die that way. And the Bible's very clear that each of us has done things that aren't right, things that aren't good. That's what sin is. Things we do, but also our attitude to God. Do you notice in verse 40, the second criminal says, don't you fear God? See, the Bible says that when we die, we'll be held accountable for the things we do in this lifetime. And like the criminals on the cross, our sin renders us guilty before God. It renders us deserving of death. But our passage today, it's a reminder that that God does not want to give us what we deserve. He doesn't want to give us what we deserve when it comes to punishment. Um, God isn't like the religious rulers. God uh, God doesn't sneer at us. God doesn't mock us in our failure. He's like Jesus who loves his enemies and he desires good for us. He offers forgiveness, not punishment. Well, at least not for us. Um, this week, my wife and I, um, we just live right here in Yonville, and um, we went down the road when the fire was burning up on Soda Canyon. And uh, we watched from the side of the road, and you could see it burning on the hill. Um, it's a bit scary when the fire's that close, and I know some of you it was even closer than that, uh, close to the homes of people we love. Um, what's amazing is you can see where the air tankers dropped the flame retardant. Um, there's big red stripes up the side of the mountain. And that the fire has burned right up to the, fire, the retardant, and then it's stopped. There's another way to stop fire as well, and that's by backburning. Do you use that expression here? Um, in Australia, we do backburning every winter. Um, the fire crews, they, they use control burning in winter to, uh, to create fire breaks around key structures. And the reason is this, you know, once it, once it burns, the fire can't return there. And the firemen burn the ground so that when the wildfire comes, there's nothing left that can burn. And it's the same with God's judgment of sins. God pours out our judgment on Jesus 
So that when the judgment comes to us, there is no punishment left. There is nothing left to burn. There's nothing left to fan the flames of God's judgment. It's all been done away with. Jesus, who never did anything wrong, stands in the way of our judgment so that we don't receive what we deserve. We get set free, and that's, that's God's love. That's God's mercy. That's a gift that God the Father and God the Son made available that day on the cross. He made it possible for the criminal to go free. And that's exactly how the story ends for criminal number two. A reading of verse 42. And the criminal said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And that was the second last thing Jesus ever said. Isn't that great? He promises a criminal that he will go to heaven. Truly I tell you, Jesus says. There's something special about this story because it, uh, it tells us how much we earn our way to heaven. <laughs> we don't earn it at all, do we? We don't deserve our salvation. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. The answer is there's nothing we do to deserve or earn our salvation. There's nothing this man does other than acknowledge Jesus as his only hope. That's all he does. He hangs his hope on Jesus. Uh, he sees the kingdom of Jesus that everybody else was blind to. And he asks Jesus to look after him when he dies. That's all he does. Such a simple picture of faith, isn't it? I wonder how many people get to their deathbed and, and then they look back on their life and realize there's parts of their life that they just, they're really, they're not happy about. Things they wish they hadn't done, regrets. Um, I'm imagining that a lot of people in that moment actually turn back to God and say, do you know what? I really did mess a lot of things up. And I think... If we look at this story, I believe that in those moments, God will forgive them for what they've done if they truly hang their hope on Jesus Christ. Just like he welcomed the thief on the cross in his last moments. I don't think that's how God wants us to do it. I don't think he wants us to wait until we're about to die and then confess. Um, if that's your plan, it feels a little disingenuous, you know, kind of a little bit uh, insincere. Um, the thief on the cross, though, right, he has this moment of clarity just before he dies, just before it's too late. We need to make sure that we don't leave it too late either because you, know, you never know when Jesus will return or when he'll call you home. I think there's another type of person who gets to their deathbed and, and this is the person who gets to the deathbed and the thought of their sins is just too much. It's too horrifying to bear. Um, by the way, you don't need to be on your deathbed to have this kind of realization. Um, right out of school, one of my friends joined the army and uh, he had a, did a couple of tours in Afghanistan and uh, when he was 20, he told me, he said, I don't think God could forgive me for what I've done. This story of the thief on the cross, it's a story that tells us there is nothing God can't forgive. And the theme of forgiveness is the subplot of the entire Bible from, from the garden as soon as Adam and Eve get kicked out until the, the day that God welcomes us back into the garden of the new kingdom of paradise. By the way, that's what paradise was. It was, a, I think, a Babylonian idea of a garden where you could walk with the king. You would become a, a companion of paradise, walking with the king in the garden. So the whole Bible is about forgiveness as God undoes the curse of sin and he welcomes his children back into the garden once more. Do you believe that story? Um, we read this verse before in John 6.37. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. That means if you come to Jesus, no matter what you've done, no matter what sin you've committed, Jesus will never drive you away if you come with sincere intentions, desiring to be saved. Um, 
it almost seems too good to be true. And perhaps some of you are like my friend. Perhaps there are things that you can't even forgive yourself for, let alone asking God to forgive. But Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Um, John Bunyan, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, um, he imagines this conversation between Jesus and, and, and somebody who's like that, somebody who says, my sin is too much to bear. Uh, he imagines a conversation like this. You, you say to Jesus, but I'm a great sinner. And he says, I will in no wise cast you out. But I'm an old sinner, say you. Well, I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a hard-hearted sinner, say you. I will in no way cast you out, says Christ. But I'm a, I'm a backsliding sinner, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Christ. But I've served Satan all my days, say you. I will in no way cast you out. I've sinned against light, say you. I will in no ways cast you out, says Christ. I've sinned against mercy, say you. I will in no wise cast you out, says Jesus. But I have no good thing to bring with me, say you. Jesus says, I will in no wise cast you out. A thief on the cross, he knew that he was deserving of punishment and undeserving of forgiveness. But that's the whole point. We can never get to the point of deserving salvation because we've all done things that God should not forgive us for. But he does. He does. A pastor and author, Dane Ortland, writes this. He says, with Christ, our sins and weaknesses are the very resume items that qualify us to approach him. Nothing but coming to him is required. First at conversion and a thousand times thereafter until we're with him upon death. The story of the thief on the cross, it reminds us that there is no more important conversation to have with Jesus than this one. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what will Jesus say? Truly I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this bold promise, this outrageous promise, this scandalous promise that no matter what we do, you will forgive us when we come to Christ. May we come to you with sincere hearts and with repentance. And Father, give us not what we deserve, but forgive us, please. Forgive us all of our trespasses. We pray today that as we sing this song and as we take communion together, as we remember Jesus' body given for us, his body broken and his blood poured out, that you would uh, help our hearts to trust more and more in Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen.